Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2. It's been a bit of a busy weekend. Yesterday we had multiple things going on. It's very interesting. Uh, Alan Payne and Bruce Poindexter pointed out to me even before the fact, but then it really came home yesterday when we were having the two things, that on one side of the church we were having a funeral service, and on the other side of the church we were having a baby shower. On the one side, we were focused on the end of life. On the other side, we were focused on the beginning of another life. Sounds a lot like the first Easter weekend 2,000 years ago, doesn't it? Death on Friday, and we call it Good Friday, but boy, we think about the horrifically hard and terrible day it was for Jesus, although he embraced it, not because it would feel good to him, but because it would be good for us. It would mean our sins could be forgiven. It means it meant that we could have eternal life. And then, of course, Sunday, he rose from the dead to show his victory over Satan's sin, death, and hell. But actually, yesterday, both the funeral and the baby shower were really celebrations of life. In fact, we called the funeral service a celebration of life. Because when you think about it, life doesn't begin at birth. It begins nine months before birth at conception. Uh, the mother of the baby to coming was here Saturday. The baby's already growing inside, right? And life doesn't begin at death. It goes on after death. The moment you die, you are either in heaven or hell after that. And so it goes on forever based on what you've done with Jesus. And of course, that's what Easter is all about. Whether or not we go to heaven or not depends on whether we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord and embrace what He did for us on the cross, what He did for us by rising from the dead, relying by faith on Him and Him alone. As we quoted Romans 4.25, as it says earlier, He was delivered for our trespasses. He was delivered up. He went up to that cross because of the crimes and the trespasses against God and God's law that we had done. Uh, but He was raised for our justification. The combination of the two makes it uh, a saving matter for us. And so we're so thankful that he did that. The resurrection was proof that God the Father had accepted Christ's payment for our sins that we should have had to pay for. I like how 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, says it. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So at salvation, you receive mercy and grace based on what Christ did for you. Uh, Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, judgment for your sins. That was taken care of on the cross. But grace is getting what you don't deserve. Christ's perfect righteousness counting for you on judgment day. 
And it's almost like there was a book and it said the life and times of Danny Campbell. And you look inside of it, there's such sin in there. And it just, oh my goodness, you know, such separation from God and such a self-willed man, you know, in all these different ways that I did not glorify God before I knew him. And then over here, you've got a book that says the life and times of Jesus, the Messiah. And you look in and you see all those wonderful miracles. You see all that wonderful love and teaching and reaching out and the way a life should be lived. We can look at that and say the perfect life he lived, the life of love that we all should live. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says there's a great exchange, right? My sin dealt with on his cross, his righteousness given to me to count as my own righteousness on judgment day. So it's as if you took the covers off the books and switched them. And where it was me, it said the time, life and times of Jesus and where it was Jesus, the life and times of Danny Campbell. And of course, that's the great exchange that he made. Now, back on February 28th, I actually finished, I think it was around 90 messages in the Gospel of Luke. So February 28th, we had just finished talking about Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension and how even now he's interceding for us and the commission he gave us to take the word of forgiveness to the whole nation. So I won't do that again this morning because we just did it. I want to focus a little bit differently this morning. Today I'm going to talk about what Christ's death and resurrection means personally to believers who the Bible tells us should so identify with Jesus. You should so identify with Jesus' death and so identify with his resurrection that you consider yourself crucified with Christ and you consider yourself raised up with him, already having a reserved place in heaven that one day you'll be with him at. We often talk about the main benefits. We've sang about some of them this morning. We sing about things and we talk about things like that if you trust Christ, your sins are forgiven based on Calvary love. We talk about how the Holy Spirit indwells believers. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that's your guarantee of your future inheritance. So we've got God the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We talk about how when you believe you're adopted as a child of God, you become part of God's family. He's not angry with you anymore. Now you are adopted as his child. His wrath has been taken away from you, dealt with on the cross, and now he has set his sights on growing you as his child and helping you grow. We talk about how uh, we have now eternal life, an eternal relationship with the God who created us. Jesus in John 17 said, the whole point of eternal life is that they may know you, Father, and me, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And so we have a living relationship that's going to keep on growing and be perfected out into eternity. And then that we have a reserved place in heaven. For all those things we give thanks, amen? All those things are wonderful. But, but today I'm going to talk about one thing we don't usually include, but is absolutely transformational if you understand it. And as I prepared this message from Galatians 2, I'll tell you, I, I, just, I thought of many of you in particular and there are some people that are much more perfectionistic than others. Some are more conscientious than others. And if that's you, you beat yourself up all the time for not getting everything just perfect. I hope this message does for you what... I'm not a perfectionist, so, um, you know, I'm more... Uh, you know, that, Elizabeth said, that's true, that's true, that's true. Oh, my goodness. Wish she was a little more detail-oriented. So if you're more sloppy on things, this message might not be for you. But... 
if you just beat yourself up all the time about uh, how far short you fall, even now as a believer uh, of the glory of God, I want you to rejoice in the, we talk about the true meaning of Christmas, the true meaning of Easter. And Paul goes into it here in Galatians 2. Because of what Christ did for me in his death and resurrection, I don't have to worry about measuring up ever again. And what I have to do before God has now given way to what I want to do for God. Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul writes, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live by in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. When have to turned into want to, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the precious truths here in Galatians, the whole book and this passage specifically. And this amazing verse, Galatians 2.20, that bids each of us who have believed to think of ourselves as crucified with Christ. The old me, the old sins dealt with on the cross and me having a current desire to have turned from them to put them off and instead put on Christ and to follow him, not thinking of all the things that I fall short of, but instead following Jesus into the life that he can bless and reward and use. Oh God, I pray for anybody here that is continually struggling, maybe even some of our older folks who have had a more legalistic faith, God. It's always been about what they have to do. Oh Lord, I thank you that faith can turn that into what we want to do for you. Lord, I pray that you'll meet us now in this moment. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, first we're going to look at how in verses 15 through 19, we see the reason we needed saving. We have to measure up, the scriptures tell us, but we have failed. So Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and done what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Well, how do we know we fell short? How do we know we missed the mark? We know we have fallen, we know we fail to measure up, we know we've missed the mark because of what's written in God's law. God told us what he expected of us in the law and it revealed that we didn't really love God like the first commandment talked about or want to do what he said uh, in the rest of the commandments. Look at verses 15 and 16 again here. Paul says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul talks of his Jewish background here. Almost everybody in this room is probably a Gentile background. None of us are Jews. Maybe some of you have a little bit of Jewish in your background. So there's Jews and then there's non-Jews, biblically speaking. 
Uh, and the Jewish folks, of course, were the ones that got the law going all the way back to Moses. And before that, they were identified with Abraham, you know, in his great call to uh, begin. And his descendants would become the children of Israel. But God had clearly told the Jews what he had expected of them in the law. What Gentiles could only anticipate by creation and conscience, God had clearly spelled out to uh, the Jews. It's very interesting in Romans 1 how, and Romans 2 how Paul talks about the, how the Gentiles instinctively, uh, when they lie, know it's wrong. When they steal, know it's wrong. But God had explicitly spelled that out for the Jews. And so creation and conscience testify to some of the law, but God had explicitly told the Jewish folks what he expected. Look at the end of verse 16. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Paul had been a Pharisee, and the school of the Pharisees, that was a particular way to take the Old Testament and interpret it. And it was very active and one of the most... it actually loved the Old Testament. I mean, they thought so highly of it, and they so didn't want to sin against God in the Old Testament law that they actually added extra things in so that they, if, if, the, if it was don't lie, they would have 10 more rules to help them keep them from lying, right? When it came to the Sabbath, they'd have extra rules to keep them from not doing what was forbidden in the Old Testament. But somewhere along the way, keeping the law had become an end in itself and not a means to the end of doing what the first commandment says, loving God and what the rest of the commandments said, that the lower ones that talk about loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. All the Old Testament commands can be summed up by those things. But instead of starting with faith like Abraham did, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, the Pharisees had made the law an end in itself. They were trying to be justified by doing what the law said rather than as those who had faith in Yahweh already, doing what the law said to bring out their best life that they could be for God. Now, so measuring up had become an obsession for the Pharisees, so much so that they viewed it as an end in itself rather than a means to the end of loving God. Now, Paul understood that the law had good purposes, but was never meant to be an end in itself. Now, here's where many preachers wrongfully spend time criticizing the law of God. And it has come down as a modern heresy to be anti-commands of God, anti-law. It's called being antinomian. And it's been one of the main concerns going back to the 1600s and the Reformation that some people would so embrace grace that they would just uh, view it as a, as a non-necessity to do any of what God said. Well, Paul helps us with that clearly in these pages and in this message. We're going to try to bring that out for you as a means of appreciating not only what Christ has done for us, but our personally identifying with him in his cross and resurrection. The word law can actually, when we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, it can refer to several things. First of all, sometimes you say the law of Moses and you're just talking about the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Other times, it's used as shorthand for the entire Old Testament, and the context helps you understand when that's the case. It can also refer to the Mosaic law that God gave at Mount Sinai, starting with the Ten Commands, right? And then there are some references in the New Testament to Roman law, usually as an illustration, but we don't have to obey Roman law uh, as believers in America in 2021. And then the law of Christ to love one another, the royal law, James calls it, and the law of sin that believers deal with, that the by grace and by the Spirit and dwelling, we're fighting the old sins, the law of sin that's still in us until we die. Now, 
The Mosaic law can be divided into three interrelated parts. First, there's the moral law. And that was specific commands that God gave based on his character and expectations for loving him and for loving one another. And the moral law is timeless. It's always applicable. And each command is repeated for Christian believers in the New Testament. And so if you see a command in the New Testament that is also in the Old Testament, you know that God expects that of believers today just as much as he expected of Israel in Old Testament days, right? Now, the difference is we talked earlier about when you turn on the light, but it's not plugged in, you don't get light, right? Now we've got the, when we believe in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And so the Spirit can help us Uh, do the things that are in that moral law. Well, then there's the civil law. And the civil law for Israel was the specific outworking of the moral law for Israel before Messiah came with penalties for breaking the law. According to Galatians 3, 22 through 25, that we'll look at in just a moment, it has served its purpose now that Christ has come. And then there was the priestly law, the priestly law. That was laws about the way for individuals and the nation to be forgiven before Messiah came. And that law of what the priest had to be like as a perfect person, uh, you know, dealing with their sin first and then how they brought the perfect sacrifices, the spotless lambs, you know, and those things, uh, all of that was fulfilled by Jesus Christ and his atoning death for sinners. And so that's why we're not going to have in this service time, a time when we sacrifice a lamb and you have to come up and me put blood on it from you, you know, and stuff like that, uh, because Christ has done that for us. In the New Testament, there are three great, what we would call expositions of the Old Testament moral law. The book of Romans is one, the book of Galatians is another, and the book of Hebrews is a third. Romans dealing big time with the moral law, Galatians with some moral, but also the civil law, and then the book of Hebrews specifically uh, about the priestly law and tells us about how Christ fulfilled what the Old Testament priestly law called for. Now, the word law occurs 25 times in the book of Galatians, the book we're in. It's only six chapters, and that's the third most in the Bible, believe it or not. So you can go to Galatians and get a real good grasp on what God's telling us about the law and its purpose, and how it is good and usable in some ways still today, the moral part of the law. Um, Only Romans and Psalms have more occurrences of the word law, but the highest density of verses is in this six-chapter book, the book of Galatians. So in Galatians, Paul is dealing with the mindset he used to have as a Pharisee, that justification before God could only come by obeying Israel's civil law. So what had happened? In the church there, there were some Judaizers who had raised up, and they hadn't been able to get their sins forgiven anyway, so so they had embraced Christ and his message of forgiveness, his message of love. But then they said, now wait a second. To be truly right with God, a person not only needs to place their faith in Christ, but then they need to go back and get circumcised like the civil law called for. And so they had mix, they'd thrown this hybrid mixture together of salvation and rightness with God coming from a mixture that included faith plus works. In throughout the last 1500 years, the Roman Catholic Church has done the same thing, this polluted mixture of faith and works that drives people to wonder if they've really done enough to be right with God. And Paul was dealing with it in the, uh, those with it from a Jewish background that were called Judaizers in his day the legalistic, pharisaical interpretation of the law. Now, 
But they would not have stopped there. They would have said, okay, great now that you're circumcised, but now you also have to obey the dietary code that Israel was called to obey. And you have to do all the other things it says uh, in the civil part of the law of Israel. Um, So they would have done all that. Look at Galatians uh, 2 again, verse 17. He says, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Mm. So he's rejecting the hybrid approach there. To be saved, it takes faith in Christ plus rebuilding those Old Testament works that uh, had, you know, had become an end in itself and made them despair about how uh, far short they fall. I remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And probably the common person hearing that despaired because nobody tried harder to do the minutia things of that Old Testament civil law than the Pharisees had done. Paul says in verse 19, the law itself had helped him to die to that wrong understanding. Now he understood that was not the law's purpose. Now again, I just want to bear down this, on this a little bit more. Sometimes Paul's words about not having to keep the temporary civil law, the law that was just there until the time of Christ, sometimes those are taken and people nowadays view the moral law with disdain. So it's not uncommon to hear something online or in something you're hearing a preacher say, okay, yes, you've turned to Christ and that means you don't have to worry about any of what the moral law says about sexual things. Throughout the New Testament, that approach is called heresy that after you turn to Christ, you have a new desire to do the things of the moral law so that you can experience God's best for your life. So any attempt to use what Scripture says about law and grace to justify not turning from sexual sin as a believer, so to speak, or saying that it's okay to lie or okay to steal or okay to murder or anything else is a flagrant misinterpretation of Old and New Testament Scriptures. Let me show that to you in three passages. We're going to put up here 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you want to turn there, you can. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and here is verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, if one uses it rightfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. What he's essentially saying there is that you're not using the law right if you uh, reject any of what the Ten Commandments basically say, right? And so all the truths of the moral law. Romans 7, 7, he says this, Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So again, it's not uh, bad at all. There's a, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And then Romans 7.12, look what he says. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. <laughs> Why? Because if you do what the Ten Commandments say, under the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit as a believer then what happens in your life is you start conforming to the you that God wants you to be. It, you know, all those things are written there to help us grow. And so uh, it's so good. But why else is the law holy and the commandment holy and just and good? 
Paul had come to understand that the law, that it wasn't the law that was bad, but his former approach to it, trying to make it a checklist for salvation, that if I do this, this, and this, and this, I would be saved. And the problem is that uh, we don't have the power to do that when we're lost and apart from Christ. The law revealed God's character and expectations. That's a good thing. But our inability to do all those things showed our need of forgiveness, and it showed our need of a Savior, one who could perfectly measure up when we didn't perfectly measure up, and we don't perfectly measure up. The law was never meant to take the place faith in God was to have. It was never meant to be the end. It was meant to be the means to the end of knowing and serving God. Turn over to Galatians 3, verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Here Paul's specifically bearing in on that civil law that the Judaizers were saying, you had to do all of those minutia things or you couldn't really know that you're saved. He compares the law to being a guardian. Now, I don't know if anybody here ever had a guardian that wasn't your parents, but what happened is, what happens is they take care of your legal necessities until you turn 18, and then as an adult, you make your legal decisions for yourself. Paul likens the Old Testament uh, law, the civil law, to that, kind of like the scaffolding on a building. Once you finish the building, do you need, still need the scaffolding? No, the scaffolding comes off, right? And so that part of the law, along with its penalties, the physical penalties for death for certain sins and other things in the Old Testament, that part was the scaffolding that is no longer necessary now that we've learned of Christ, what he did for us on the cross, and how we can have faith in him. Now, hang with me here. Let's turn this in, especially for you perfectionists out there who beat yourself up over how you don't measure up. Paul's old approach to the law was like how many conscientious students approach taking a test at their school. <laughs> some students do what? Maybe some of you out here. Some students obsess with acing the test. Obsessed with getting it right, getting a perfect grade. Getting a perfect grade, what happens? It becomes an end in itself, right? More than thinking about what the, why the instructor wants me to know that material. I've got to get the hundred even if I forget all the material the next day. The main thing is getting the grade, not learning the material. So some of these folks get straight A's, but often haven't really learned the material. There's some former students, many of you out here, and you got A's in English, math, and history, but to this day you hate English, math, and history. You hate everything about them. The problem wasn't what our teachers wanted us to know about English, math, and history. The problem was viewing the testing part of the material as an end in itself rather than a means to the end of putting the material to work in our life so that we could use it in real life situations, right? I think it's something Elizabeth uh, tells me a lot. She studied nursing, and if she doesn't know what to do and do it right, people could die. We've got a doctor or two in the church. We've got other nurses and medical workers. If you don't get it right, somebody might die. You don't need, it doesn't matter whether you got 100 on the test in the past. You better know the material, even if you were a B student instead of an A student, right? I fear that something like that school analogy happens oftentimes in church, particularly to our students. 
we, we learn and we memorize the verses to get the prizes, but even though we've memorized the great command and the great commission, we don't put them into practice in our life. We uh, learn and regurgitate the scriptures, and many of our adults are like this too, but when it comes to really having the love for God, like the first commandment says, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, and the Bible tells us that's the sum of the law, right? Believing in God, loving him, loving others in his name. It often isn't practice in our life. I remember when school became fun for me. I saw, I, it was when I started seeing the connection between what I was learning and how it could apply to my life and make me a better person and make me more useful. And honestly, that didn't happen to me until I was in college. And I was finally saying, yes, I want to know this material, because of how I can put it into place and be the best me by putting it into place in my life. And I attribute my physical, I mean, my spiritual salvation as a senior in high school to a lot of the reason why my full approach changed to school. Because it was no longer about have to, it was about want to. And every subject somehow could be tied back to God's glory. A science studying his great creation, right? History, seeing God's hand at work in the world. Of course, directly all I was learning in my Bible and Christian education classes. Uh, it, it became much more about discovery and application than worry about whether I got 100 on the test or not. I wanted to know what my God wanted me to know and to apply it in my life. That's what Paul means when he says in 1 Timothy that the law is good if we use it lawfully. When Paul and his perfectionistic, pharisaical friends had used the law as a means of salvation, they didn't measure up, but they took pride in doing a better job than others did in it, and they were angry and judgmental and hypocritical all the time. Now his focus had changed, and as we see in Galatians 2, he realized another had measured up before him. But now he also understood that if the law was a test for salvation, you had to get 100 every time or you failed. Look at this verse, James 2.10. For whoever shall keep the whole law but stumble in one point, he is guilty of all of it. Galatians 3, verses 10 and 11. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Back in Galatians 2.19, that's what Paul meant when he says that through the law he had died to the law, that he might now live to God. I'll tell you, what good news that is for all of those out there who don't measure up and you know it because it, it can't do anything but beat you down if you approach it and say, I need to do all this right or I can't be saved. Aren't you tired of trying to measure up in the checklist approach to things? Getting this right, getting that uh, better than right in all the different ways. You're so tired of trying to measure up instead of bracing the fact that you can't measure up, but God loves you anyway. God loves you anyway, even though you fall so short of what he expects. And you say, Danny, help me out a little bit more with that. Well, think about each of those ten commands. Let's just think about one. Uh, thou shalt not lie. That's the precept. There's a principle behind thou shalt not lie, and it's that, God, uh, that, that we need truth to have good relationships with each other, right? I can't lie to you. I need truth from you if we're going to have a good relationship. The person behind the principle is that God is a God of truth who will always tell us the truth. He tells us we're sinners before him. And I think about how exacting the law is when you think about how it reveals 
our need of a Savior because we fall short. Think about the precept, thou shalt not steal. We've got some police officers in the room. And uh, you, let's say that you were caught shoplifting. And the, you stood before the judge and said, it's the only time I've ever done it and I promise not to do it again. The judge says, guilty. You're a thief. You stole, you're a thief. No, I just did it that one time. No, you're a thief. You say, Danny, I've never murdered. Well, Jesus said, if you hate somebody else, use as, as good as murdered them. So you're guilty of that. You say, Danny, I've never physically committed adultery, but you've had lust issues over your lifetime. And Jesus compared and said, if you've lust, you've already committed adultery with a person in your heart, right? So each command, as we look at it, we fall well short of the 100%. And probably even if the standard was 80%, none of us would have measured up before salvation, right? And so that's why we look at that. And if you continue that approach, getting it all right after salvation, then you're just so miserable. But thankfully, those who are crucified with Christ now live by want to instead of have to. Verses 20 and 21. Look at verse 20 again. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live by the, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's why we cherish the old rugged cross. Because we couldn't measure up. But we're told that Christ measured up for us when he took our sins to the cross. What we couldn't do, Christ did for us. And so now we look at those things and we say, hey, listen, any of those old sins that characterize me, I want to be, them to be crucified with Christ. I want to leave them there on the cross. And I want to walk in the newness of life just as he was raised from the dead. I want to live the risen life now. And as you embrace that, as you embrace that, that part of you that put yourself first, the part of you that could not do what God said you had to do when you crucify that old man, that old woman with Christ, then you can start to live in the reality of the new birth that he has for you to live in. Paul visualized all his sins being crucified with Christ on that cross, including all the proud self-efforts to measure up on his own without needing God. Now, instead, he lived by faith in God, and he wanted to obey God, not to measure up, but to experience God's best in his life. Same material, a whole new approach to it, this side of the cross. And I hope you've got that approach too, that whatever God asked you to do as you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you, then as you do that, and as you want in your mind to do that. Now, Romans 7 says there's going to be a battle between the mind wanting to do what Christ says and the old law of sin that wants to drag you back to the old ways. The secret of victory in the Christian life is saying yes to God the Holy Spirit, one decision at a time. When a sin comes in your mind, like to tell a lie to get to your own advantage, you go, no, wait, wait, I crucified that sin. I put it here on the cross. I, I, and maybe you blow it. Maybe in that same moment you lie instead and you realize, oh my, uh, I need to be a person of truth if I'm going to have good relationships. So Lord, thank you for 1 John 1, 9 that says if we confess our sins, if we go back to the cross with that sin, if it's crucified with Christ, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For the rest of your life, you think about the cross and you think about the resurrection. And every day you think about what should be left on the cross because it's sin and what should be lived out now for his glory because it's his pathway to believe and to love. Paul knew Jesus, what Jesus had done for him on the cross. 
Here's what Ephesians 2.15 says. It says, Christ abolished in his flesh, that's what he did on Good Friday, abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. Imagine a cosmic ticket writer writing a ticket every time we broke God's law. Imagine the stack of tickets that you'd had, right? Each one, at the end of the day, you couldn't pay back. And Christ taking care of that for you on the cross. And you, Colossians 2, 13 and 14, it says, And you, being dead in your trespasses, he's made alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken them out of the way, having nailed them to the cross. I think about my own life, just working through the Ten Commandments. Danny's charge is not loving God. Not loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh my goodness, even as a Christian, I think about how wonderful my Savior is and how sometimes cold and uh, lifeless my heart is. And I think about how even on this side of salvation, how I don't um, always love Him the way I should. Colossians says it's nailed to the cross. I think about how the second commandment says that we're not to make idols out of created things. And yet, my heart, as Calvin said, is an idol-making factory. So many times, uh, turning from pure faith in Christ and the things that he's called us to do, to getting enamored with the toys of this life, things that we can, uh, you know, that are good gifts from God, and we turn them into things that matter more to us or sometimes uh, distract us from pure devotion to God. I'm so guilty of that, and you are too. And yet, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm taking this mental approach and this faith approach and in my heart. I'm taking the things that, could, that pull me away from God and I'm saying, no, Jesus already dealt with that. Let me put it where it belongs. I think of the third commandment. Don't take God's name in vain. Don't misuse his name. That's far more than curse words. That's don't misrepresent him, misrepresent him by the things you do. People know you're a Christian and yet you are often sinning in the flesh and you've misrepresented him to other people. And we do it all the time. He says that's crucified with Christ. It was nailed to the cross, and you want it to be nailed there. I think about the fourth commandment, minimizing God's day of worship, right? He said, hey, you got to work, and then you got to rest. you got to take at least one day a week and rest. For the church, that's the Lord's day. And I think about it's so nice to have a full church this morning, but how many times other things get in the way. And I think about how many times I've been in church, but my mind and heart really haven't been there, right? I haven't taken the full use of that day to recharge spiritually for the week to come. Nailed to the cross, nailed to the cross. I think about the fifth command, don't, you need to honor your mother and father, right? I think about the ways and the times that I've dishonored my parents, not submitted to their authority when I was growing up, and even now sometimes not checking in as much as I should since we live in different places and things like that. And oh, uh, God has this perfect plan for families to love one another and not forget about one another, and sometimes we do, don't we? And... That's nailed to the cross. I don't measure up as much as I want to, but Jesus took care of it on the cross. I think about the charge of thou shalt not murder, and that deals with hate also, as Jesus said. And I think about how I need to nail it to the cross. Then we get into the charge of thou shalt not commit adultery and all the ways that we can sexually sin, including our lusts and things like that. And we live in a day where it doesn't, the church doesn't go another month in America without hearing of another scandal, another leader that's fallen and those things. We don't measure up. 
We don't measure up. We have to go to Christ for his forgiveness and live more pure lives for his glory, not because we have to, but because we want to. I think about the char- this charge that says, thou shalt not steal. And that includes cheating. And I think about all the cheating I did before knowing Christ and how sometimes, even today, is, as a matter of work, you know, you can um, cheat the job of the hours. You can steal the work product from those that demand 40 hours from you and you spent five of that on the internet and checking email and other things when you should have been working for your paycheck and how far short we fall of integrity in these areas. Nailed to the cross, nailed to the cross. I've been crucified with Christ. Thou shalt not lie, nailed to the cross. And then God's word has one that no ancient peoples had. Thou shalt not covet. See, you might not have done anything on the outside, but on the inside, you desired your neighbor's wife or you desired your neighbor's things, their boat, their nicer car than yours or whatever it was. And that is coveting. And God gave it to them to steward, and you'd rather be the steward of it. And so the coveting one that goes to our motivations and shows that we can be doing all the right things on the outside, and yet inside there still be corruption in a heart far from God. Well, that's just me. You can do it for yourself, right? But uh, what is our defense in those things? Well, Galatians 2.20 tells us, I'm guilty. I've been crucified with Christ. What is Danny's defense? My sins were crucified with Christ the Lord. He has revealed to me by his Holy Spirit that everything in there is me putting me before God, me not loving him and not loving others as I should. And so my only defense is, you're right, God, I'm a sinner before you. I need you now as much as ever. I I have been crucified with Christ. And so there's my defense. And when in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's already been proven that we're unjust, we're unrighteous, we don't measure up, and yet he forgives us because Christ measured up for us. And so you don't have to walk with that albatross around your neck anymore. The verdict is not guilty, justified by faith in Jesus. The debt is paid. The debt is paid. Here's my invitation for Christians as we process this. Rejoice that you don't have to measure up anymore. Christ did it for you. <laughs> now, of course, the goal is not to sin. 1 John 2, 1 says, I write these things to you so that you won't sin. But if anybody does, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You don't ever have to worry about doing to receive God's love. You've received that by faith when you turned to Christ. And he, as we learned last week, has put all his commands under to believe in him and to love one another in his name. Anything he's asking you to do that he repeats his moral law on the page of the New Testament that you now have the power to do because the Spirit is inside of you. You have the power to want to do should be a want to, not a have to, so you can rebuild your life around his truth and make a difference in the world that he has for you to make as the person he's made you to be in Christ. My invitation for you is to tell Christ you want to follow him to experience his best. Ask him to remove all vestiges of have to from you. That's Old Testament thinking. And instead, replace it with want to. I want to follow this Lord who's loved me and given himself up for me like that. I want to experience his best in my life. That's why I'll obey now or I'll try to obey, even knowing that he'll forgive me when I turn to him when I've blown it. 
Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, won't you let Jesus save you today? For you, it's always been about have to rather than turning to this Christ who loves you so. Won't you let his blood cover over your sins, forgive you? Won't you nail it to the cross, the sin nature that puts yourself first? And in these particular sins, the Lord reveals to your mind that you're tired of being your all-consuming thought in idolatry against a holy God. Everyone bow their heads. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.